I'm Anna Wynn, and this is Critical Literary Consumption. This is a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers and scholars, their reading and writing practices. Some recurring questions I ask in various terms are, what's the significance of a text, and what is the significance of a citation? For those who listened, in episode three, I discuss academic book reviews and reviewing with Dr. Rosemary Deller, who is the managing editor of LSE Review of Books. Today, I extend the discussion by focusing on literary book reviews and book reviewing as a form of labor. My guest is Dr. Philippa Chong, a cultural sociologist and assistant professor in sociology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Her research is on the value we assign to social objects and social groups. Her most recent book is Inside the Critics' Circle, Book Reviewing in Uncertain Times, an empirical focus on book reviewers as cultural intermediaries in the cultural market. Your recent book, Inside the Critics' Circle, focuses on reviewing fiction, and books that are focused on the practice of reviewing seem to be in the genre of classic cultural studies like Roland Barthes and Susan Sontag. And I find that there are very few academic books on interrogation and meta-critique of reviewing in general. And very early in your introduction, you write that you're interested in the performance of reviewing, and you want to understand how book reviewers undertake the task of reviewing and evaluating literary fiction, because literary texts are, as you argue in the book, the most sacred and revered form of text. So my broad question to you is, how did you decide on the topic of reviewing fiction, and how did you select the 40 critics to interview? Okay, thanks for the question. So you're absolutely right that there's been a lot of books on criticism that are really, really useful. A lot of them that I came across typically are written from, you know, personal reflections of the people who have been doing this work in the industry. So they might talk about their reflection on the craft of reviewing or maybe commentary on how the industry is going. And there's also some books that really do deep dives in terms of some of the stylistic features of famous uh, reviewers and the like. So what's different about uh, this meta or sociological approach to reviewing is that my focus is not actually on books, Mm -hmm. nor is it on reviews. It's actually about book reviewers as workers Mm -hmm. and how they concretely go about doing this very peculiar type of evaluative labor. So for instance, I ask things like, well, how do you get to become a reviewer in the first place? How do you figure out whether books are good or not? And what sort of things shape what you put in a review that the average reader might not be able to witness otherwise in the final printed form? So the book isn't trying to offer any kind of treatise on how to do book reviewing the right way. It's not an argument for the value of book reviewing in any particular normative sense. Instead, by interviewing many, many different critics, I try to arrive at an empirical portrait of how these people do the difficult work of evaluating books and how when it's seen as such an utterly subjective type of thing to do, what steps they take to try to make sure they do a good job. Mm-hmm. And I think a takeaway of the book is that even though we think of reading as this really intimate relationship, right, between an individual and a book and you're on your couch and you're just kind of in that world and whether or not you like it might seem as completely subjective, that may be true. But when it comes to book reviewing, which is about encoding your evaluation according to the appropriate standards of the field, that is an utterly 
interactional and social practice. And that's what the book eliminates. Mm -hmm. Did you reach out to particular critics or how did you do the selection process? Right. So in terms of how I selected the people, you know, figuring out who to review for the project was already demonstrating to me how informally organized this field is because you know, there's no formal accreditations to become a book review. There is a National Critics Association in the United States. However, um, just because you're part of that association doesn't mean that you are reviewing regularly. And just because you're not part of that association, it doesn't mean that you are not reviewing regularly. So what I ended up doing was going to actual published review sections themselves and saying, all right, I don't know how to define reviewer in a theoretical sense. I'm just going to figure out who's doing the work of reviewing practically. So I went to three uh, newspaper publications and I just drew up a list of everyone who had published a review of fiction in a given calendar year. And then from that list, I just started to really randomly sample and, and contact people based on their sort of publicly available information. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I found that reviewers are a really diverse group of people. A lot of them make their living as professional writers, as journalists, academics, maybe creative writing teachers. A lot of them are novelists. And even more common is a lot of them are a combination of mm -hmm. all those different roles because book reviewing really isn't a full-time gig anymore. And because of that, I was able to find their contact information pretty easily because they're academics or because mm -hmm. they have their personal websites as authors. I love that you focus on literary fiction, maybe because I spend so much time reading academic texts and having to review them. And um, when you wrote in the introduction that literary text is considered the most sacred form of a text, does that, does that make the, um, the reviewer feel burdened? Hmm. I think that in the debates around what is the value of a review mm -hmm. and what is distinctly valuable about a professional review versus amateur reviews, mm -hmm. I think that those debates are shaped by and are so particularly heated by the very sacred importance that we place on books and in literature in general. So I think it really comes through there mm -hmm. because as I write you know, in the book, Reading is seen as such a universal social good. Yeah. Right? Reading is good. Literacy is good. And reading literature seems particularly sacred because it's associated, you know, with some great thinking and, and sort of a development of our human empathy and compassion and understanding different worlds. I think that you see a defensiveness and intensity when book reviewers, particularly fiction reviewers, mm -hmm. fight about what they do as important versus amateurs in ways that you don't get in the same way when you talk about, say, professional food reviewers mm -hmm. and Yelp reviewers. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are similar 
issues about, you know, are people taking jobs? Are people who are amateurs starting to make the traditional food reviewer less relevant because I can just go on Yelp now? Mm-hmm. But I think that what you see in those types of conversations is that it really is about relevance to consumers. When you talk to book reviewers or you read debates about how book reviewing is changing because of amateurs, there's an added moral component to it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, that moral component is about, you know, the clarity and quality of our public discourse and why it has that additional moral compunction and frankly moral panic about um, amateur reviewing I think is because of the special place that books have in our culture. I think this transitions well into um, my next question about your subtitle. You use the term uncertainty and can we talk about the three types of uncertainty that you list? So in the book, you have three. They're epistemological, social, and institutional, all of which, as you write, are connected during the actual reviewing process. So you describe uncertainty as something that stems from the personal act of reading and reviewing the book, and then the comparative aftermath of other critics' assessment of the same piece. So why do critics have so much uncertainty after publishing their review, despite, as you told Rosemary Deller, who was my third guest on the podcast, Mm -hmm. during um, your Q&A with her for the LSE Review of Books blog, um, that there's an uncertainty after their assessment, which would be a form of certainty in itself? Yes, absolutely. And so this is a great question because I think you nailed an important distinction, which is critics' certainty about their judgments about a book, whether it's good or not, and then their certainty about the aftermath or what kind of impact that review is going to have once it goes out into the wild, right? So there's the personal judgment in their minds, but then there's the cultural object that they actually produce and what kind of ramifications it can have, not just for the person that the author of the book they're reviewing, but also for themselves as individuals. So if we think about these as two distinct problems that reviewers are faced with and have to solve, they actually deal with two different audiences. So in the first case or the first instance, we're talking about critics who are trying to figure out whether or not a book is any good. Right. And they have to really convince an audience of one, which is themselves. And so while, again, we think about taste as being really, really subjective, critics aren't being paid and asked to report on books just from their personal private interests as readers. They're meant to extend beyond their idiosyncrasies and say something more general about the value of the book they're reviewing. And in chapters, I think two and three, I detail how really critics go through a lot of cognitive labor and steps to try to purge or at least bracket what they might see as more private or idiosyncratic considerations from their opinions and only present their professional judgments. So like an example would be when people um, try not to pay attention to the press material and hype around a book or actively try to avoid the reviews that other people have published about this same book. So the result is that if you kind of insulate yourself and subject your own opinion to enough reflexive analysis, it instills a kind of confidence in them that yes, you know, I've read this book, I've kept away from polluting content like influences, and I've subjected my opinion to sort of rigorous thought and I'm able to back up my assertions of a book's quality with, say, quotations from the book. 
it's through that process that they get a certainty of whether or not a book is good or bad or deserves a positive or negative review. Okay, even though they go through this very rigorous progress or process that I outlined in the book, that doesn't mean that once their review goes out, they're not gonna be confronted with five other reviews written by other people who went through equally rigorous processes of evaluation and that completely disagree with them. So even though they're certain about their pronouncement about a book and their judgment about a book, you can see that once the book goes out into the world, there's other sources of uncertainty that might make them feel less confident in their role as reviewer without necessarily making them change their mind about whether a book is good or not. So in the second moment, when the book kind of goes out into the world, they figured out their personal judgment. But when they write whether a book is good or bad and how they write about it can really affect um, the potential blowback or response they get by putting that review out into the world. So when you write a positive review, you think, okay, probably people will be happy with that, right? The publisher will be happy. The author will be happy. It should be a good time. But when you have a negative review, the range of responses that people may have um, is considerably broadened. And that's its own type of uncertainty, this uncertainty about how are people going to respond to the fact that I have criticized this book. And in the book, I detail all the different things that can happen. People might be uh, worried that they will get a bad review from that same person in 10 years from now, or they might worry that they alienate um, an editor at a publishing company that they might want to work with. So there's all these different ways, or you know what? Some people get notes from authors that actually thank them for their critical reviews because they found them illuminating. There's so much uncertainty about what the consequence of that negative review will be. And that's why they can still feel a lot of uncertainty about the process of being a reviewer and uncertainty about what's the right way for them to package their criticism while still being utterly confident and certain about their judgment of the quality of the book itself. There was a really poignant conversation you had with a reviewer who seemed uh, saddened that the, a book that they had disliked actually got a lot of rave reviews from other people. And they were, they seemed a bit emotionally disturbed by the aftermath of their review. And I, I as someone who reviews books, I, I don't think I'm that negative. I've told Rosemary this in our conversation mm-hmm. and I, Maybe just say something about me as a person that I don't, I don't think of the consequences. And I think that's why um, your book was really illuminating to me, like this kind of turbulence and um, I guess uncertainty is probably the best word and skepticism. And then Mm -hmm. the realization that the review you thought was kind and critical and kind may not be actually received in that way. I think it's it, it's really yeah. impacted over the way that I've been writing my reviews to Rosemary now because I want to be critical, but I don't want to be so unkind that it's just about um, dismissing someone's arguments or the way they wrote something. Absolutely. And I think how to toe that line between being critical versus being mean, um, mm-hmm. everyone has their own independent yardstick 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then even when you think you're on the right side of that, yeah. other people may just, it might read different in black and white, or other mm-hmm. people might take particular offense to it. So there's just a great deal of uncertainty about how to write in a way where you think you're serving your agenda, the agenda of the paper, the agenda of the readers, but then, you know, there can be unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. There was another topic that you explored throughout actually both on your Twitter and in the book about the lack of diversity and inequalities in publishing. And when I got to those sections, I immediately thought of the the hashtag of the summer, um, publishing paid me. Mm-hmm. And I like to try to connect this problem with a point you made throughout the book. You note the dilemma in writing the review is part of a larger contextual point in the literary oeuvre versus reviewing a book on its own terms, which I'm always interested in the hermeneutical tension that I'm always exploring. So despite the reviewer's best attempt at reviewing fiction that could be outside of their cultural experiences, is compassion and empathy always the goal of the reviewer? Or or do they in some ways try to continue this myth of objectivity? You touched upon it earlier about the subjective versus objective. So I would say, do they promulgate the myth of objectivity? And I think my answer to that is that I, I think that critics are informed by the myth of objectivity, much like other types of knowledge workers. Some critics that I interviewed rely on ideas about purging the subjective, contaminating parts of themselves as readers from the reviewing process via technical procedures. So in science, we might think of these procedures as sort of culminating in the scientific method, but in reviewing, it was... Practices like treating one's initial reading or opinions about a book as a hypothesis and then going back into the book and seeing if they could verify it with quote unquote evidence in the form of quotations or via using formal literary criteria to justify why a book is good. And, you know, similar to the idea of reliability in science, we might repeat experiments to see if they yield the same results so that we can trust the outcome. But in book reviewing, something similar happens in that many people treat their reviews as like a single experiment, but then they wait to see if other reviewers sort of conducting their own experiments through reviewing actually reach the same results or conclusion about a book being good or bad. And then when there is more um, consensus or when there is a commonality across the reviews, that's when people seem to agree on the factualness of a book's worth, merits, or weaknesses. So critics will say book reviewing is totally subjective, all right? Everyone is very, very clear about that. No one thinks it's an entirely objective thing to do. However, when they describe what they do, you can see that ideals of objectivity do inform how they think about doing a quote unquote good job. So in terms of their uh, goals, in terms of being empathic or compassionate, I'm kind of um, hesitant to comment too much on that only because I didn't really directly ask them about that. So I'm not trying to be invasive. I just don't feel like I have enough data to assign and I don't want to just assign motivation to them. But I think that the publishing paid me hashtag is important. And in some ways, if I could rewrite 
the book, I definitely would have paid more attention to this. Um, though my, you know, my goal is just kind of to do the nuts and bolts of reviewing. And my future work is trying to pay more attention to some of the consequences of the social organization of reviewing as having unequal impacts and outcomes for different types of authors. But if I can answer this question with kind of like a story, the very first moment that this project on book reviewers was just like a twinkle in my eye, so to speak, um, was actually when I was interning at a publishing company uh, when I, in my first year of college. And I was working in the marketing and publicity department. And part of my job was sorting through reviews. So this is in the ice ages. So this is when people were like, <sighs> There were clipping services that would send you physical copies of reviews. Uh -huh. My duties was to sort through, through them, buy their publicists and give it to them. And I noticed there was a really tangible difference between the way people were writing about authors of color and their white counterparts. Also women and, and male authors. There was a real, real difference. And I just remember being struck by that. Also in how we sort of shot their photos was really, really different. The covers were really different. And I remember that was just something that always stuck with me. And then eventually I left publishing and decided to pursue academia full time. And it was there that I learned, you know, in sociology of race and gender um, and inequality about how processes of exclusion occur, how lenses of race and gender get used to justify all sorts of unequal practices. And, you know, there was those two experiences. And what this project really did for me was enable me to bring my sociological lens and analysis into that moment when I observed the different ways that men, women, and authors of color were being treated in those press clippings together. And I think I'm trying to really clarify for myself at that period, like, why is this happening? What is the logic behind this? And I think that the world of arts and books and definitely reviewing sometimes can be seen as really separate from the real world, right? Like the concrete world. Yeah. At best, some people think it's rarefied. At worst, some people might think it's just like a frivolous thing we do on the side. It's not really um, something that we should concern ourselves in everyday life. But I think that treating the arts and books as either too rarefied to be connected to the real world or too frivolous to be connected to the real world has the effect of almost exculpating it or obscuring how things like racism and sexism actually work mm. in that system. And so where this goes back to the publishing paid me idea was I think the value of that was that it showed how issues of racism and issues of gender discrimination and the like has a very obvious and tangible effect on writers as workers, right? Because they were getting fewer advances. But I think that what I'm trying to do in the future is also show how the way that we not just pay people, but the way that we review authors of color, the way that we review women, even though it seems like praise, not all praise is equal. Yeah. And I think that some work that I've done, for instance, on how reviewers talk about quote unquote ethnic fiction, it can be the best ethnic fiction there is, but it's still being treated as fundamentally separate. Yeah. So um, I think that it is 
fair to say, and I have tenure now, so I think I can say this, that publishing definitely operates from a white episteme. And reviewing therefore reflects that in terms of which books are treated as just literary fiction and which books frankly are treated as genre fiction or somehow specialized fiction in general. And so I think what I'm trying to say is that what the publishing paid me hashtag really crystallized for me is how processes of exclusion, including racism and sexism are happening in the world of the arts. Mm-hmm. And I wanna bring attention to that. But at the same time, I think that what reviewers do and what types of inequalities happen in the arts aren't just about economics, aren't just about how much advances are paid. It's also on how we talk about artists and why they're valuable. It's about a recognition that's symbolic. And I think that one of the values of studying the artistic world is we can see how those symbolic processes of exclusion actually happen outside of the world of the arts as well. So I think there's a lot of dialogue that can be happening. And that's what I'm trying to work through right now. Your um, sociological assessments on craft and art, it reminds me of Howard Becker's Art Worlds, but I think I think you cited art world yeah. in, in the book, right? Sure. So the whole social actors, social institutions, and social objects. What what I remember from Howard Becker's book, he doesn't really talk about the case of an exclusion or inclusion, does he? Yeah. As much as I love old classic theory, there's always limitations to it. And um, I like how you frame the, the previous answer to the question I had asked about how can we move forward with this kind of thinking and make it better or make better worlds possible? Thank you for bringing up Becker. I think if I had to sum up everything I just thought about, (laughs) um, there is great value in taking a sociological approach to artistic fields as workplaces, Mm -hmm. as workplaces and not thinking of authors as mythical creators, but Mm -hmm. as workers who are being compensated differently and who are being valued differently because of race, gender, um, sexuality, et cetera. And I think my book on book reviewers looks at book reviewing. Yes, they're cultural content creators, but they are also workers Workers, of strange conditions and facing constraints that limit what they're able to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not knocking art off its pedestal. I think it's just adding a kind of a nuance to our understanding of how creative industries work Mm -hmm. that has a unique leverage in helping us understand how inequality functions there. And especially now during the pandemic, you know, who's considered essential worker, who's not, who gets, Mm -hmm. who gets benefits and vaccinations. I think your entire book is very timely in the question of creative types who we forget are also labor workers and yeah. And maybe um, they don't have access to um, insurance or like their um, income isn't as stable as we want their salaries to be. Um, One of my general research interests is on the question of experts and expertise. And in your book, you mentioned that uh, reviewers include general beliefs about good books, good literary citizenship, and the proper place of art and literature in contemporary society. And in fact, in your very first page, you write that book reviewers are are an example of market intermediaries. Could you clarify that concept a bit more? 
And do you think reviewers are cultural experts and how do they perform their expertise to the act of reviewing? If, as you write, book reviewing is an act of a socio-relational practice, how are reviewers chosen and what kind of cultural capital and power do they have? Okay, so the idea of market intermediaries is that uh, if you think about the cultural industries as having people who produce cultural works and objects, and their goal is to try to get it into the hands of consumers, right? This is like Hirsch's industry model. Um, an example of a market intermediary would be that person in between the producers and the consumers. And their goal is really to um, act as a surrogate consumer. Obviously, there's so many books, thousands, thousands, thousands of books come out every single year. When you're making reading choices, you're not necessarily going to even be able to browse the titles of even, you know, 10% of those books that are published. So what the market intermediary can do is that they can become a surrogate for the general reader and say, I'm going to sift through things on your behalf and I'm going to tell you what's worth knowing about and also if it's any good. So basically they're intermediary between the people who are producing the work and the consumers and what they say will influence how consumers subsequently see the types of books or what other types of market offerings are being presented. So that's basically the idea of the market intermediary. There's someone in between, there's a third party that shapes how consumers see and understand the products that are being offered on the market. That's what they are. So that's one way of thinking about what book reviewers do, right? No one's going to go through all the titles, but they have decided that these are books that are worth reviewing. Actually, the editors decide that these are books worth reviewing. And I'm going to give you a sense of what the book's about and whether it's any good. So that there's third party influencing how people will see this commodity or this product on the part of the consumers. Okay. So does this mean that they're cultural experts? Now, I know you come from like an STS background, so expertise is a thorny, thorny yeah. thing, right? And there's as many definitions as we can possibly ever want. I think that it's less important whether I think that they're cultural experts or mm -hmm. experts in general. And what's more important is that they are treated as such. Mm -hmm. They are recruited or invited by editors of book pages to function as experts and then when you actually get down to why they think they're qualified to review books, many reviewers express some kind of ambivalence about whether they consider themselves experts. They say, no, I'm just like a lover of books. Yeah. A lot of them also expressed ambivalence about whether or not they even call themselves critics because a lot of them, maybe they only write three or four times a year. Does that count? But if you move away from those broader types of categories and when I ask them, okay, why were you qualified to review this book, this one book? And that's how the matching is done. People aren't hired to be book reviewers as full-time positions. People are hired to review an individual book and it's a, that individual assignment. What I do find is that while they might be, uh, critics might be uncomfortable with the idea of being experts, when they explain to me why they chose particular assignments and why they thought they could bring something to it. It was clear that they felt that they had some kind of insight or specialized knowledge that they could draw upon and apply to writing 
a useful review. So in that way, they did feel, they did act as though they were experts, though you might be surprised that the basis of that expertise isn't what we might traditionally assume of normal experts. It's like far more personalized bases of expertise. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how reviewers are selected, Again, no formal credentials. There's mm-hmm. no job board. There's no monster.com for reviewers. Um, instead, it's editors of review pages. They find that there's a book that they want to review and they need to find an individual critic that they think is the right fit. Mm-hmm. Um, when I asked critics and editors what that meant, like what is a good match? What's a good fit between a reviewer and a book? What I found was that what they really, really meant was not even having a broad experience as readers necessarily. And you didn't need, you know, a PhD in English or a master's in creative writing. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of what they emphasized as qualifying someone to be a reviewer for a particular book was references to the reviewer's experience as professional writers Mm -hmm. and also just their general life experiences, which might seem surprising because it seems like such an informal basis for talking to people. Mm. But the idea was that they were looking for someone who would be what they call like open to liking a book. Mm. They were trying to match someone's sensibility as a reader to a book that they might choose in their time when they're writing in their private life, right? Because Mm -hmm. as market intermediaries, they're supposed to be surrogates for the average consumer. So they're almost standing in for that reader, ideal reader for a book out there. Mm -hmm. How they decided whether someone was an ideal reader or would be open to liking a book, that was, you know, dictated by things like whether a reviewer had ever written books on similar themes Mm. as the book that they're being asked to review because many reviewers are themselves novelists. So the example I use is, you know, there was one writer and she wrote a book about um, a woman on an island, a feature woman island, and she found that once her book came out, a lot of the books that she was asked to review featured women on islands. Uh It's a small small group. She tends to get a lot of those books, but why is that? Well, the assumption was that because she had written about a book about women on islands that she was open to the idea, like she wasn't (laughs) going to hate it. Also, ostensibly, she's thought about um, reading other books that feature women on islands and be able to bring that kind of background knowledge Mm -hmm. to that review. So that would be helpful. Another example is um, a kind of expertise that's not based on people's individual writing histories, but actually just their lived biographical details. So Mm -hmm. for instance, there was one person, one editor, and he told me that there was a book that he needed to assign, which was set against a particular war in Eastern Europe at this particular time. And he knew a guy who had lived in that part of the world during that war. So what he did, the editor had assigned the book to that fellow with the understanding that maybe in his review, the person who had lived in that part of the country could sort of talk about the verisimilitude of the story and the characters and things like that. Mm -hmm. So these were the types of expertise that were being used to hopefully pair reviewers with books 
in the absence of more formal types of credentials. Now, de facto, does that mean, you know, does that mean uh, I would just ask my neighbor, you know, who lived in that part of Europe to be a reviewer? No. Indeed, like, what I found was because this type of information, like, reading other people's books and getting their reading tastes and sensibilities or knowing sort of personal details about them are very specific types of information. I find that many editors ultimately had to go through their social networks and ask people or just happen to know people's biographical histories or their bibliographies to even come to mind to be a reviewer. So what I mean by that put differently is that in order to be a reviewer, you have to be known in these very peculiar ways. Your, your reading sensibility has to be known. Maybe some strange biographical details need to be known. I remember someone saying she got books that always featured screwball characters just because the editor knew she was kind of a screwball herself. Yeah. That's a strange basis of expertise. And so what that means is that the pool of people that can be potential reviewers is very, very small because these have to be people whose work or whose personal proclivities already known to editors. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the type of information that you glean from a CV, right? You have to know them through professional interactions or reputation mm -hmm. and things like that. So, you know, on the one hand, we say like, anyone can be a reviewer. There's all these, there's no credentials. Anyone can enter it. True, true. You don't actually have to be a professional, you know, academic to be a book reviewer. But at the same time, you have to be known in such specific ways that de facto, Mm -hmm. You are in a closed, a relatively small circle of people who is already well known to the editor in yeah. these ways, which probably means that, you know, you do particular things for livings and things like that. So the pool is quite small mm -hmm. by virtue of how informal the ways that expertise is defined, actually. You're kind of destroying my understanding of um, what it means to review. You said earlier, you said that... Um, not everyone necessarily likes books or reading. And I'm reading the library book right now. And she interviews some librarians and asks them, do you like books? Do you read a lot? They said, no, it's just a job. So it's, it like comes back full circle to what you're saying that somehow we, we conjure up these, I don't know, caricatures or assumed personalities. But in fact, that maybe the labor aspect is something that we don't always think about with, with the creative types or yeah. people who work within... Um, an institution like book reviewing and the library. Um, I read your seventh chapter often, the one titled, Do We Need Book Reviews? Because I write them. I kind of have um, a contentious relationship with book reviewings. I, and I always love that question because um, I asked Rosemary in our chat, who reads book reviews? And I think on your Twitter, um, you had a host of questions and and I want to ask you, as someone who wrote this remarkable book about book reviewing, who do we need book reviews? And and you noted in that chapter that there's a general crisis in journalism because of new technology and the decline in arts reviews in, in a broad sense. So do you think we need book reviews or what? how can we make them valuable? If we assume that they've been diminished by value, how can we make them more valuable now? Yeah. The way that I take that question is like the implication that the value of book reviews, and by that I mean, you know, the types that you would find in like the New York Times and things like that, mm -hmm. um, 
that the value of those reviews have been challenged as of late because of particularly the rise of amateur reviewing Mm -hmm. or new digital um, ways of sharing our ideas and thoughts about books. And in that context, I think that book reviews absolutely do have value and have not actually lost value despite the many, many public essays and concerns about that. And I think that it has changed though in that the value of book reviews has become more specific. And I think that value can be gleaned from what my reviewers said was what they found most disappointing about book reviews that they didn't like. So they didn't like books that were seen as just product recommendations, not useful, not Mm -hmm. enough information. They didn't appreciate book reviews that were written clearly just to slag someone off or because they were best friends, not useful information. They also didn't appreciate books, reviews that seemed really predictable and wrote in their coverage, right? Just kind of a cut and paste type of book report. And I think what these gripes have in common is the idea that book reviews can be much, much more than a thumbs up, thumbs down, and a book report or summary, Mm -hmm. or a way to get back at one's enemies. Um, You know, a book review has value in the sense that it can contain really original ideas, Mm -hmm. that it can be a creative essay and pontification about the state of the world around us through the vehicle of considering a book. So, In general, like I think that we use culture, we use movies, we use books to help us understand the world around us. And I think reviews of books can be an extension of that mission. So for instance, we see how, again, to go back to the issue of diversity, debates about which books get chosen for review, because so few do get selected and um, given that visibility, as well as whose different voices get included in review pages. It's a discussion not just about commercial reach. That's not just what it's about. It's about whose viewpoints and whose experiences of the world get represented. Mm -hmm. In terms of what reviewers actually write, a lot of the people I interviewed enjoyed critics who could go deep into a book and see what made it work or not work on a technical level, but also were able to expand out and give a sense of why that story or why those ideas mattered in today's context. And so I think part of the unique value of book reviews today is actually in its, a clue to that is its historical association and embeddedness in newspapers and the mandate to report on the, on the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said before, books and fiction are not separate from the social world. They're not a weird part of the world. They are, and culture is part of how we understand ourselves and our society. Mm-hmm. The fact that book reviews, traditional book reviews are embedded in traditional news organizations with that mandate to help us and inform us about what's going on. I think that is a unique position that the traditional newspaper has that no other form of reviewing can lay claim to. And I think it can be exploited more. I know you you mentioned um, Yelp when we're talking about other forms of cultural criticism. So like the restaurant review versus Yelp. And then we talked a lot about 
new digital media and ranking system or um, amateur views. So, so I'm wondering if things like um, Goodreads, Bookstagram, personalities on Instagram, they rely a lot on metrics. Mm-hmm. I think like the accessibility and the, this kind of sense of metrics. In my STS world, a lot of my colleagues talk a lot about numbers and metrics and trust in numbers and data. I want to bring it back to my question, do book reviews have value? Mm-hmm. You say yes. I also think yes. And we're both in agreement that they, it's it's based on the content that they bring and the forms of representation that they can bring. So if the amateur book reviews are based on metrics, are the traditional book reviews as we know it, are, what what measurements are they based now? If it's still on a column, if it's still in a newspaper or a magazine, mm-hmm. and it's not, and I'm, I'm certain that they're probably digitized in some sense, but mm-hmm. I, I will always read the New York Times book reviews because I work in a library and that's like their basis on how to center, you know, new releases. It's based on the on the metrics. So yeah. So what kind of evaluative standard do we place on the traditional book reviews versus um, the Goodreads, the book, Bookstagram accounts and stuff like that? Yeah. I think that at the core of this question is the third type of uncertainty that I talk about in the book, yeah. which is institutional uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. And that what I mean by that is the fact that a lot of the norms and meanings around how to do reviewing, what it means to be a reviewer, indeed what counts as a review are really, really unsettled and ambiguous. There's a lot of uncertainty around it. Um, And so part of that is not having a clear or at least a singular vision of what is the goal of a book review. And therefore, it's very difficult to be able to assess whether that goal is being successfully executed or reached. Part of what makes book reviewing so fragile or uncertain from the institutional perspective is that it can be so many things. Even though a lot of the people I spoke with don't like the idea of a product recommendation, don't like the idea of reviews as just being summaries. One could easily argue that book reviews should have a very clear evaluative component. Book reviews should have a clear summary component. And right now there isn't a lot of consensus of whether that's right or wrong. So there's so many ways on which a book review can succeed, but also so many ways on which it can fail. I think that what the growth of these alternative types of book discourse is what I'll call them has done is that it is causing the traditional book review to clarify what it does best compared to these new types of reviewing or book discourse. What that looks like is a narrowing And some might see that as a diminishment of the traditional book review. For instance, getting clicks or getting people to go out and physically buy a book, maybe that's better achieved through Twitter. Maybe bookstagrammers are more impactful in getting people to buy books. Maybe also the fact that you have a book at the front table of a store is more impactful of whether someone will pick up a book rather than reading a book review. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that the traditional book review is no longer valuable. It just means that these alternative ways by which we discuss and disseminate our ideas about books are more effective in that regard. Mm-hmm. So it goes back again to, but well, what can the traditional book review do that no one else can do? And again, I really think that context um, and that mission of and that mandate of telling us about the world mm-hmm. is, is really the unique power of it. And I would also say this, when we think about these alternative forms of reviewing, I think that oftentimes it is the metric of sales that we use to say like, well, th- this is better at selling books rather than traditional reviews. Therefore, we don't need traditional reviews. I think a lot of reviewers that I spoke to would take issue with the idea that book reviews were ever particularly good at selling books and that that might not even be their main goal. So it's the fault. It's the wrong metric to use. Mm-hmm. While Twitter and Instagram and Goodreads can get people perhaps more excited to buy particular titles, you know, same with like Oprah's book recommendations and all these other types of forms that existed in digital, non-digital forms. Something unique to traditional book reviewers is that it is embedded in the newspaper world, but it's also embedded within this larger institution of literary criticism. Mm -hmm. And the goal of literary criticism, by that I mean newspaper reviewers, I mean essays like in the New Yorker or the Nation, and I mean academic literary criticism, All those forms of criticism are oriented towards sort of discussing and identifying excellence and, 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 you know, quality in literature generally. That is a type of legitimacy that can only be afforded through these particular types of reviewing and book discourse. Twitter and Bookstagram will not be able to contribute to the cultural legitimacy of a book in the same way that a New York Times book review will. They have different functions and I think that's okay. I think that the fact that alternative means like micromedia selling books more effectively than a traditional book review just means that the unique value of the traditional book review is no longer that it sells books. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.